Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Bigger Picture. This week, I'm sticking to the audio format as I've really been loving getting into one-to-one dialogues again, and this format seems to work really well for that. Uh, in the future, actually, my Substack will be a combination of my normal written features and articles, along with new guest articles, and episodes like this. So this week, I'm speaking with author and poet Sophie Strand. We actually discuss the difference between the written and spoken word in our dialogue, among many, many other topics. Sophie's work focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. Her first book of essays, The Flowering Wand, Rebuilding the Sacred Masculine, was published in 2022, and her latest book, The Madonna Secret, is an eco-feminist historical fiction reimagining of the Gospels, and that was published earlier this year. I loved this conversation because Sophie has, of course, a gift with words, but she also has a uniquely lyrical approach to looking at history and contemporary culture. Sophie is also one of the teachers on my upcoming course, New Ways of Knowing, where she'll be sharing how myth and poetry can give us profound new ways to navigate complexity and tap into a deeper appreciation for the world. The course kicks off on December 13th, and the live tickets are almost sold out. So if you're interested, you can read all about it on my website, alexanderbeiner.com. So without any further ado, here is the wonderful Sophie Strand. Sophie Strand, it's a real pleasure. This is, I think, the second time we've had the pleasure of, of connecting in some way and speaking, but um, I'm really excited to, to be doing this and, and also to, to introduce my audience to your wonderful work. So thanks for taking the time. Well, the experience is mutual. I, think, I feel like I've had my eyes on your work for a long time now. People have sent me your work for a couple of years. Um, so it was really fun to get to talk with you in the, that storytelling event that Ian McKenzie moderated. And yeah. Happy for a follow-up. Yeah, likewise. It was the same with you. I've seen, I've been sent stuff and seen your name and seen your work popping up for, yeah, also a few years. So this is, this is great. So there's a couple of reasons we're doing this. One is, like I said, because I, I want to introduce your work to my audience. The other one is that you are one of the faculty members on a, a new course that I have coming up that starts in December called New Ways of Knowing. And one of the reasons I was so actually instinctively keen to reach out to you pretty, pretty soon after the, the storytelling event, I was like, uh, it's you know part of the process of designing the course has been like the course itself an emergent process and i felt like your work around myth and poetry and history now i would say as well and how those all intersect feels to me like a very important lens through which to make sense of the complex times that we live in today so i wanted to maybe break them down a little bit and maybe we could start with with myth um so i'll just to very simply ask you why do you think myth matters? Why do I think that myth matters? So if we look at the oldest piece of continuously alive knowledge, you know, continuously transmitted knowledge is a myth. It's a 37,000 year old Aboriginal myth that has passed not through objects, but through bodies and through breath <laughs> to us. In this day, it has gone through bottleneck events, through cultural collapse, climate change, it has survived. So I'm interested in how myth is extraordinarily re resilient. I also, if we replant myth in its original purpose, myths are like concertina. They're really, really dense. They seem really simple, 
but they are vessels that are built, narratives built to carry the information of a culture, like agricultural practices. How do you sustainably interact with an environment without depleting it? What time do you harvest something? How do you take care of someone who's dying? How do you give an abortion? Like myths seem like stories, but stories are just really easy to remember and are more compelling. We actually don't see lists or genealogies until after agriculture, until and after civilization and after alphabetic texts arrive. So lists are really hard to remember. If you actually look at the list, quote unquote, in the Bible, that comes from an early, earlier oral tradition, even genealogies have a begat, they have a verb. You have to like have some kind of story to remember, this person begat this person. Like there has to be some kind of connective tissue of story. Um, and so for me, myths are these vessels in which we plant our important relationships and our important information, our wisdom that we want to survive from generation to generation. And of course, the beautiful thing about oral storytelling, which is, you know, has been the organism of myth for most of its existence, is that it adapts. It is always shifting through different bodies and through different audiences. It's, it's it, you know, it connects people to their place in a specific time. Um, and so these myths, these stories, these pieces of information survive. They don't ossify. They don't become outdated. I oftentimes say that, like, the truth is something that has to be malleable. It has to be adaptive. It has to evolve. The truth is not stable. If it's if it stays still, it, it's out of date immediately. Um, and so, for me, a myth is a, where a community plants the best practices of of its culture in order to see if they can survive. You know, myths. What if you plant them back in their original context are usually just personified elementals usually like gods and goddesses and deities and heroes are just corn or coyote or berries that are using these these you know anthropomorphic forms in order to engage us and to keep us in dialogue um so yeah i'm really we have a kind of you have very simplistic almost precious view of myth these days because it comes to us through the translation of colonialism and empire. So we'll deracinate, uproot a myth from its ecosystem, from its anthropological circumstances, from its original language and assemblage of beings it was responding to. And then we hear like coyote ate the berries and threw up and was a trickster. And we think that's a cute indigenous quote unquote story. But if we replant that in like the, you know, Pacific Northwest, in the original language, in the original people, it's a highly important story about not eating the berries before you put them underground to leach out the toxin that will give you diarrhea. You know, it's um, Robert Bringhurst and Sean Kane, two mythologist poets and, and who I love and really look to, write a lot about this the like the ecological density in myths in their original language and their original culture that we have lost through these co-optive experiences of empire yeah it's beautifully said thank you there's there's a few different strands there i mean one of them i want to pick up on is this tension that i feel in myself as a writer and I, i'm curious if if you've come across because we in our time and place in history we are taught to and this has probably been true for a few thousand years to express story and express meaning through those alphabets and through the written word yeah. now you know sometimes it's embodied like giving a reading or or a performance 
but the internet for a long time was text-based and now it's kind of reverting to kind of an oral tradition in some sense like instagram and tiktok are primarily moving you know they're kind of video platforms where someone is talking to you but they're kind of broadcasting right they're not there's not a reciprocal relationship so i'm curious how what what is your relationship with the written word these letters that we we use you know to write books and get our message out there do you uh yeah how do you feel about them that's a great question yeah i mean i never want to have a kind of precious look at some fetishized Eden, some, you know, some perfect state of purity before we, you know, fell from grace. Um, We're not going back to some perfect, you know, oral culture in our little intentional communities. Like we are here in the mess, in the muck. I'm a writer. I don't, I used to hand write my books. I don't anymore. It's so much easier to type and revise. I love the idea of like salvaging a life, you hijacking these tools, using them, you know, trying to use them for different purposes than they were created for. Um, I think Anna Singh talks about like rubble ecologies where you aren't striving towards purity. You're using the tools that are around you. You know, you're, you're trying to, to compost. You're not working by negation, by subtraction. You're working by addition. Can I put things together to make this work in a more interesting way? And so for me, it's important to think about what happens to our brains when we shift because the, the issue with with information with huge paradigm shifts and and huge shifts in information technology is you cannot see what's happening to you so it shifts your consciousness you know the medium is the message it shifts the way you make meaning in a way that's very hard to see up close while it's happening so i think it is interesting to look back at that shift around 3,500 BCE, we see, you know, the proto-Canaanite alphabets, we see the shift into chirographic culture. But the real shift for me is when the um, the Greeks come and add vowels and really um, use the alphabet to take other people's languages, um, which is a really interesting move. The, the first alphabets you see actually don't include vowels. So they're really hard to use. They're pretty much, you have to have a lot of cultural information and you have to sound out the words as you're reading it to make sense of what you're reading. So you need a lot of extra contextual information. They're really, they're still highly relational, highly ecological tools. And then, and you also, you can only read it if you're part of that culture. You won't be able to make sense of this. You won't be able to just come in and read this script without an understanding of how to pronounce words, what words might mean in this culture, what a bird does, you know, all sorts of information. And then the Greeks come in and put in vowels so you don't have to do any of that sounding out. And you can actually apply this alphabet to other cultures' languages and phonetically steal them. So I always say that there are in oral cultures, there are ecologies, in textual cultures, you have encyclopedias, which is you have these these accumulate, just like we're accumulating resources and surplus in agricultural states, we start to accumulate words that have no backing behind them. So I talk about like, there's this very primitivist, um, problematic view of oral cultures that they have smaller vocabularies that they somehow haven't evolved like us. But if you look at those vocabularies, they have gold backing behind them. Each word denotes a real relationship, a real thing. It does work. I oftentimes tell people like, erase, what if every word in your head was erased and you could only have 50 back for the rest of your life? Which words actually do work in your life? Which words actually are important to you? 
Like not in a, I'm guessing it's not going to be justice or liberation. It's going to be something like, hello, I love you. You know, thank you. Food, clean. Like, you know, it's going to be highly useful words. And so I, I think of, you know, empire creates the idea of accumulating words from other cultures that have no backing behind them, no relationship. You have uprooted words that have, they don't actually hold any substance. And so, yeah, I think it's interesting to look at that shift. How how does pinning a word to the page allow us to think about beings not as verbs? Because in oral culture, knowledge is a verb. It's not something on the page. It's a string of breath that ties you into relationship with other beings. But the second you put a word on the page, it stays still. It doesn't evolve. You can own it. You know, <laughs> and so that allows for conceptual shift whereby you can own other people. You can hoard surpluses of words and food and people. Um, and that's that's an important shift. But in this moment in time, we can't go back. Our, our brains have changed and they will change again. They're changing right now. I love the fact that we're moving towards podcasts and audiobooks. And I think that the more we learn with our ears, the more we learn sonically, the more we actually physicalize knowledge. Like when we're reading words, they come in visually, but when we hear them, they're entering into the seashell curvature of our, our, our ears. They're vibrating in the instrument of our organism, you know, I love that. And also we can't take notes and accumulate the knowledge. Whatever is going to stick, sticks. I oftentimes tell people when I'm talking to them, I'm like, don't take notes. Whatever stays was supposed to stay. Whatever is lost was supposed to be lost. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do. The thing I do worry about is the speed. When I say worry, I mean, I don't pretend to know if it's good or bad, but it seems quite intense for our nervous systems. The speed at which we're receiving sound, noise, light, information, information is changing from body to body and mutating and shifting these genes, memes. And we're the, the, we've become vectors for information that's evolving much faster than we are. Yeah, that's I, I really love that idea of excess words. I've never thought of that before. Um, I can feel my I can feel the side of me that wants to hoard words. <laughs> well, wait, so here's the question. What are three words you would want to take with you? Oh, that's a good one. So I think please comes up because mm. I think it has multiple uses. Yeah. Um, safe. I, mm -hmm. think. I could imagine yeah. that having a lot of context um, and and love probably yeah. because yeah it's got so many different yeah so they're they're fundamentals right how about how about you what would your three be well i think love mm -hmm. for sure um i think like safe like edible like like can i eat this like i think about like what little kids ask like can i eat this <laughs> can i put this in my mouth <laughs> um and would i and also like enough like, like, like giving someone an option to say no to me, um, a word that would open up the space for someone to like, say, stop. That's yes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Because if you take something like stop or safe, so much of a business contract is really just a big question mark around the word safe. <laughs> so like right? Thousands of pages, potentially, and all these meetings. And it's really a question of, is this relationship safe? And can right? we come to some agreement that it's safe and make ourselves feel as though it is? But really the word safe would, um, 
Well, I mean, yeah, also like get to the nub of it. And we could just dance around it and like repeat the word. I read this great quote. Have you read Hillary Mantel's Wolf Hall? Uh, oh, I think I was meant to in university, but I don't think I have. No. Yeah. Right. I'm, I, it's one of those books that I'm ashamed that I haven't read, but I'm reading now oh. and it's better than it's, I, it. People were like, you'll love this book. And the more they said that, I was like, oh, I don't want to read it, but I'm reading it and it's fantastic. And there's this great moment where the Cromwell character is talking to another character and they're like, it doesn't matter what's in a treaty. It's the process of making the treaty that is the treaty. You know, it's it's people coming together and negotiating and talking and spending time with each other that is the treaty. It does not matter what's on a piece of paper. Absolutely. It'll be violated eventually, but like yeah. it's that moment in time. Yes, I love that. That's true. And and of course, treaties are violated. You're absolutely right. It's the connections yeah. between things that get strengthened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so there's um I want to ask you in a moment about about animism, right? In mm -hmm. the in the context of what we just talked about. But I also wanted to just ask you about your experience. You've done your own audiobook narration, right? Recently. <laughs> How was that? Because I did as well. And I'd love to talk about this as well. Because I think it it's different, right? But what, what was your experience? Did did you enjoy it? What was your experience like? What did you learn? Well, I've done, I've done a couple audiobooks. So I've done audiobooks for other people. Oh, and okay. those were, I liked those a little bit because those were someone else's words that I was trying to act out and infuse and give grace to. And also they were short. They were like little chunks of time. But for my own, I had to, I did not want to do, I wrote a 600 page novel with 40 different characters. And I'm not a voice actor and I'm not a professional audiobook reader. And I did not want to be the audiobook reader for my book. But my publishers were like, we will not do an audiobook if you don't do it. And I thought this book, the premise of the book, the frame narrative is that an old woman is telling a story. So I was like, you know, I, I guess I'm being asked to like put my money where my mouth, like my mouth where my money is, whatever, um, and do this. Like if I wrote it as an oral story, I, I guess I need to actually tell it now and do it and it was it was 90 hours of recording i think it came down to 22 hour a 22 hour audiobook but it was 90 hours of back-to-back -back recording every day at this small studio doing multiple voices and reading large portions in aramaic wow. <laughs> and, and doing a lot of male voices and it was hilarious i mean it was really physical well, the thing that i thought was interesting was it was incredibly physically tiring like I was sitting still, but I was holding myself in such a way that I could ha be, have a clear voice. I was trying to do these different voices. It was a hugely exhausting effort. But it also at the end of it, I was like, oh, now the story is done. Like it, like I'd never had a sense of completion with handing in a manuscript or typing the last page. And there was something about doing the audiobook that I was like, this has moved through my body. My body has finally like metabolized this story. Um, so yeah, I mean, really goofy though. I always tell people like, listen to my audiobook, but have a libation in hand. Like, please. <laughs> I the last day I was doing the character of Jesus in this book, because this book is like a composting of the Christian story. And I said to the director of the audiobook, I said, can you give me like a voice um, clip of Yeshua so I can remember what he sounds like? And she was like, oh, don't worry. He sounds like Ashton Kutcher in that 70s show. And I was like, oh, <laughs> last day of recording. You're going to tell me that? Like, but I, knew, I was I'm wondering, what was your experience like with that? 
Yeah, I mean, it was, I really resonate with this idea of the exhaustion afterwards. I was incredibly exhausted. Like, I, you know, it reminded me of doing an all day drive or something. Mine was three yeah. days, so it was less, but it was like that kind of like, oh my God, I haven't moved, but I'm exhausted. So I, yeah, I'd been playing Irish music in Belfast the, for like um, three days before. And I, that was mm -hmm. like, I came back on the Sunday and I was started on the, I think I started the next day. And that was really fascinating because I feel like that helped because I played the flute and the flute is breath hmm. and you know embodiment and yeah. so there was something around I was kind of seeing it like music as much as I was seeing it as words and um you know I, I actually heard this I was listening to John O'Donoghue who I'm guessing you, you you've come across um Irish if people don't know him yeah, check him out Irish, Irish like one of my favorite he's like I call him my secular saint but yeah. yes absolutely <laughs> yeah spot on and so I was listening to I think the, one of the last podcast he did with um chris krista trippett yeah I think yeah which is this beautiful podcast um and there's this line in it where he's like music is what writing is what words wish they were right? right like music is what writing wishes it was i was like oh that's such a lovely line so there was something about yeah i found the i actually found the experience of it you know what else resonates with me is that 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 sense of completion at the end um mm. as well i hadn't actually clocked that until you mentioned it. i was like yeah there is something about a happy kind of exhaustion that i felt uh, at the end of it um, and, and overall I enjoyed it. And, you know, I also felt it was, um, that my voice started going on like day three. And so it's embodied in a way that writing isn't, you know, it's like you got your voice has to be there or it's not going to happen. You, like you said, you're in a particular posture. It's, it's vibrating through you. And one thing that actually changed for the rest of my writing is that I always used to think, oh, I should probably read my essays out loud before I publish them. And I never did it because I was lazy. And now I do it every time, you know, I, I read them out loud and then it helps me to um, change the, the pacing and, and the, the kind of, yeah, the, the, the tone of it. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I was thinking we, we never have to take responsibility for our words. It's a way of like physically having to feel what they're like coming out of us. Yeah, yeah we should do that more often. I, I oftentimes also, I try and read my work now to places, like to beings. Other, like, I try and, like, if I write a poem about a place, I try and read it to the place. Like, I'm, I'm trying to bring back the idea that, like, my work is, my work should be able to be, should be able to respond to other people and to other beings. Like, I worry a lot about how writing is, doesn't, it, it, cuts off our ability to be interrupted like I, I need my words to allow for interruption um that's yeah. really that's really beautiful i like that a lot and i think there's a there's something that changes in the quality uh and energy of it if it's directed towards someone i have this i have this fantasy of um my kindle version you know in kindle it'll say that if certain amount of people highlight a certain section yeah. it'll say like you know 50 people highlighted this section yeah. I have this, there's something about that that really appeals to me because it's this like little mysterious hidden glimpse into other readers. And it suddenly right. becomes this communal activity rather than rather than a kind of solo activity. So I, I have this, um, yeah, maybe in like six months, I'll, I'll open my Kindle version, see if that, see if there's enough highlights. To, and I'd be so curious just to see like, what are people, because it's something very private about, you know, in a comedy show, you get the immediate like you know, response. People yeah. will laugh in that moment or, or music or even you know, poetry reading. But when something is, yeah, written down, written in stone, you don't get that um, in the same way. Um, get so, the comment yeah. section on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Comparable, yeah. No, absolutely. So I want to um, hark back to, to about 10 minutes ago because you, we, you were talking about 
um, this kind of, you know, this kind of mythos, not, let's not call it a mythos, let's call it a kind of wish fulfillment or a fantasy that we have, particularly in the West, of going back to some simpler time and and a kind of a backward escape, which I agree with you, I'm, I'm not into. Um, and there's something uh, around animism. I know you, in your work, animism is features, certainly, and uh, you've, your work has been described as sort of um, animist in spirit, right? And and I think the you know this was a big thing I, I was investigating in in my book and in particular for so many indigenous groups who use psychedelics are animistic. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about how do you feel a, a kind of new animism looks for this mad technological world we live in? What place does animism have in it? How do, how might it, how might our animism now look different to say two thousand years ago? Well, I want to say that just like there there's a genius loci of each place each patch of dirt and i worry about this homogenizing universalism that there's a new animism that there is an animism like every indigenous culture you come into has a different form of animism has a different flavor of it a different terroir you know <laughs> um and i I am interested in the differences that make a difference, you know, to park back to, to, to Bateson, to, you know, the fact that there are beings that could, that there, there are microbes in my gut that if they were in a different place would kill me in my body. There are animals outside my door that I'll never be able to enter into their own world, their sensory universe, but we are cohabitating the same world. Our worlds are brushing against each other and yet they're completely different. So I am interested in a, an animism of humility, of understanding other beings are alive, but in a way that's so outside of my ken. And that, that needs to keep me asking questions um, and keep me responsible, you know, res able to respond to other beings' questions and queries and needs. I mean, I am very interested in new, like a new materialism. Something I've been thinking a lot, of, a lot about is that I personally think that matter is agential it is 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 capricious and desirous that matter always wants to get involved with other matter um and for me one of the really interesting edges that i like thinking at is that technology is haunted by matter and we're there's a kind of a uh uh an erased and elided christianity behind a lot of the ai conversations and and techno solutionism which is that we are going to ascend we are going to leave our bodies and our matter and our machines and it's going to be some kind of cognition that's just like a cloud in the air but the truth is that ai is built of minerals that have been extracted non-consensually from the earth and i have to think that when you're interacting with ai you're not necessarily interacting with cognition that's been coded but you were interacting with matter that might be angry <laughs> um that has created a complexity that's so outside of our understanding um and so i am interested in the fact that we have shifted matter around in, in an intense way as human beings we have terraformed the earth we have extracted minerals and forced them to do things they might not want to do and you know, I'm, I'm interested in haunted technology. How is technology haunted by the ways in which it has been built by this these minerals? Um, so that's a kind of animism I'm interested in. I'm also like, in, in, in terms of something I think a lot about is how a lot of medicine rests on eugenicist and um, ideas and how a lot of medicine rests on Nazi experimentation. How does that affect the medicine itself? How does the, the fact that a lot of our medicines are produced by killing animals affect how it 
enters our bodies. I think that matter is sticky and knowledge is sticky. It's sedimented with its with its its means. You know, it 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 it, it doesn't ever get clean of its birth process. You know, it, it comes to us already contaminated. Um, so yeah, that's something I've been thinking about. That's awesome. I love that. I, I want to continue on this thread because this this certainly overlaps to things I've been pondering. I think the Christian. I think it's so interesting this this Christian energy and in technology in general, and particularly AI, yeah. this transcendent kind of desire. Definitely, and transhumanists. I think have have this in, in particular. Um, there's that, and there's there's also you know in that is this this question. There's a lot of assumptions that that kind of. Um, Christian mindset will have about the relationship between matter and consciousness. Like um, Jeremy Narby, who's an anthropologist, he makes the point that um, the kind of animism practiced by, say, the the Shipibo Kanibo in the in the Peruvian Amazon is we can't understand it very well from a Western perspective because it is the 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 distinction they're making is between what is seen and what is not seen. So they're like, listen, they're spirits in in that water and their spirits in those leaves but you only see them if you smoke if you smoke tobacco or if you drink ayahuasca that doesn't mean they weren't there before it means that you have seen from a different angle and you have seen what's there that's so different to the christian notion of spirit with like like the breath the spirit is the thing that comes into the body and animates it from the outside and so there is this kind of tangle i think around the matter for you know let's say a lot of silicon valley um, engineers, the matter is seen to be dead, right? The matter is is dead. It doesn't have any agency. It doesn't have any aliveness. It doesn't have any intentionality. It is purely dead. Now, I don't think anything in the universe is purely dead. I don't think that's that's possible. I think it's like I, I agree with you. It's a living, thriving uh, process. Um, and so there's there's something really um, there's something very humbling, and there's some kind of um, or would be humbling, let's say to to that worldview if the matter simply stopped doing what we wanted it to do right which is what things do when they're unhappy so i do find that um fascinating and there was oh yeah there was there was one other um thing that came to me which was i, I was i recently just on friday did a um a street epistemology session which is basically it's peter bogosian runs them and it's um you have it's a cool format of, of talking where you he, you make a claim and you stand on a particular mat, strongly agree, disagree, and you both stand on different mats and talk. I've seen, uh, I've seen a video of you doing this and explaining it. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really it's it's a really cool method. And so he was hosting that and he asked me this question about AI, where he made a claim about AI, about AI should have rights. And I sound I found myself standing on slightly agree. And he was like, okay, why is that? And I was like, well, I think AI, like, there's a lot of ifs in the question, right? But what I found myself feeling was it needs to have a body, right? So for somehow a, a, an artificial intelligence needs to be embodied and embedded in the same world as us for me to feel it's uh, a kindred, right? There's something in, and you know, that could just be my own uh, anti-AI bias, you know, maybe, maybe in 50 years <laughs> I'm going to be on trial for this uh, podcast. But um, there is something about the body that gets left out i think like you're, you're pointing to this yeah is well and we forget so one thing i try and point out to people and is that we think ai is actually incredibly fragile physically materially it depends on supply chains on these like 
this one factory in Taiwan making these computer chips. Like it depends on an incredibly fragile physical system. You know, we think of it as being this like this next step in our optimization, our transcendence, but it's it's physically fragile. It, it takes heat and energy and servers to keep alive. And, you know, we need, we have forgotten that our bodies are built from the earth. We have been destroying our environment. No other animals destroy their environment that builds their bodies. We've been destroying our environment. And if we're making AI, we should realize it is it has a fragile physical body, you know, that, that we are tending and farming and gardening. And that, that, you know, just as we've been uprooted from our ecosystems, we've uprooted AI from its physical presence. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction to make. I always think of that, what, what is that quote from Harry Potter? I was raised alongside that Harry Potter thing. So a lot of those things got in there deep, which is like, I don't trust anything where I don't see where it keeps its brain. <laughs> <laughs> How about this, about this, this, this diary that Voldemort, the evil presence has been inside. And, um, I think about that a lot. I mean, I, I don't like brain chauvinism, this idea that cognition is happens in a central node, but, you know, and I, I think that, you know, cognition is oftentimes an interface between beings and their environment. Um, but I do like the idea that like, I don't, I don't believe that anything doesn't have a body, that anything isn't, think I actually think thinking is about being a body. In, in relationship with other bodies. And have you read Megan O'Gleblin's God, Machine, Animal, Human? No, but it sounds interesting. Yeah. You would love it. So she was raised, I think, fundamentalist Christian, but then became atheist, like transhuman technology writer, and then came back to the middle and has written a lot about AI. And one of the things she has talked about is what were AI actually don't have very good physical consciousness when they have really great, like, pattern recognition and system cognition but when we try and give them bodies and ask them to like navigate the world as as soma they can't do it like that's not something we we can easily recreate yeah and i mean that's that's i'd love to read that and that that is fascinating and i think you're you know <clears throat> also i think increasingly the research around cognition is showing that well you like the four e cognitive science has embodied and acted extended um and so there's something uh you know john verveke he talks about ai in this this regard and, and the, the trouble with it you know and his his idea of an ai apocalypse isn't the sort of terminator 2 it, it's just a sea of bullshit right because it's great at language like well, it's just like bullshit everywhere you can't even like wade through you don't know what's true or anything you know as an aside as well you know this this idea of our relationship to our technology as something that increasingly should be unseen and working in the background, right? It's, I think, the the difference between Star Wars and Star Trek. In Star Trek, all the tech is clean, and there's a there's a there's a kind of disembodied voice of the computer that is the interface, and you just don't really see so much the the nuts and bolts of it. Whereas Star Wars, everything's very embodied and dirty oh. and kind of touchy. And if it's robots and it's clunky and if a ship is broken, you gotta smack it and move things around. And um and I always thought that that there's something quite appealing about that vision. And of course the force is a deeply embodied and kind of spiritual process as well. I think that points in some ways to two different tensions we have around technology. And I think a lot of tech companies in Silicon Valley feel a lot more comfortable with the clean, sleek, consumer friendly, everything sort of slick. Um, but I, 
I, yeah, I do think there's something to be said for technology that is visible and naked and able to be interacted with and, and tinkered with. You know, we don't have as much of that anymore. It's always, I mean, I'm sure you've read James C. Scott's Against the Grain. Uh, no, 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 I haven't actually. I think it's the best. I oftentimes say like, if someone's reading The Dawn of Everything, don't read The Dawn of Everything, uh, read Against the Grain. Oh, okay. Against the Grain is shorter and more brilliant and much more ecologically conscious by this professor of the history of agriculture at Yale. It's, it's, it's called like the history of the early, of, of early states. And what it shows is the only way that early cities were actually highly dangerous and not really good for people and really hard to maintain. And they collapsed again and again and again. And the only way you could convince people to give up their, you know, nomadic, calorie dense, luxurious <laughs> lives um, as, you know, peripatetic travelers who were following food and having a lot of leisure time was to create city states that then offloaded the labor onto um, uh, slave populations outside the city that you couldn't see. And so what they did is they made that cities were highly labor intensive and required a lot of work, but you had to make sure the work was invisible. And so civilization is about a kind of erasure of work. I think a lot about like the only way you can convince people to be part of civilization because it's so messy and so dirty is to find a way to put the dirt somewhere else where no one sees it. And so I think a lot about that with technology with what you're saying is the only way we can convince people to want to participate in this next stage of technology is to figure out a way to dump all the dirt it's creating. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, that is sadly true of pretty much all of the dirt, including the actual dirt, including like yeah, in the like, UK. Well, in lithium, lithium mines, like, you know, it's we're creating a lot of mess. Yes. Um, this is a yeah. very, as you said, like, I think any way we can like add the dirt back in and show what's involved. I was trying to do actually, like, I like to do this thing with medicines because I, I rely on a lot of like medical interventions mm. where I like try and track their root system back. Of like mm. all their constituents like who made this where did it come from what was the research that like how can i make it as messy as possible it's coming to me as a clean pill but like where did it come from yes um i did this recently with steroids so i was given steroids in the hospital and i was like oh it was synthesized from this yam that was sacred in africa and taken mm. through colonialism like yeah. um but i like to i've been trying to do that with with computers recently and just like trying to like give them back a root system just to my own understanding. I love that. That's really, really, I love that. That could even be an exercise actually in, yeah. in ways of knowing, you know, that's great. I spoke to, I spoke to Nora Bateson earlier. Similarly, we were talking about like looking out, just looking, you know, I was an example. I was looking at a, the drainage pipe of an apartment building when I used to live on a houseboat. Um, it was like opposite. And I was, it was, I was trying to kind of get into a complexity mindset to embody and just like from the drainage pipe got into like supply chains, the water system, yeah. <laughs> the history of London. And, you know, it's a really good exercise to do because it, there's a kind of delusional mystique that comes around about our systems uh, when we don't do that. Right. And, and there's also a magical thinking and, and Carl Jung, um, writing i don't know when he was writing this particular thing i would say it was in the 30s perhaps but he was talking about um he was like where have all the spirits and sprites gone that used to be in our folklore you know and, yeah. and his argument was that that we projected them into machines so it became the yeah. locomotive the trains and now i think 
it's the same thing with with a phone where it's like how the hell does this incredible incredibly powerful machine work it it works as if by magic in the sense that i don't understand how it works and so there is i think then in a lot of ways the internet becomes a kind of collective unconscious because we're projecting all of this magic mythic thinking into it and it's chaotic as hell yeah well we're praying to it you know the oh. tension prayer we're giving it all of our prayer and I've been thinking about that in my own life, which is I, when I was writing, I had a my first writing as a ghostwriter and finishing my own projects. I had kind of, even though I had grown up in publishing, I had this fictional, very precious idea that I could be a writer without having to be a brand, without having to be visible. And then when it became clear that I was going to have to be on social media and have to interact with people and really like, you know, sell my work, I put a lot of effort into that. And then I realized I was feeding my life force into something and I could not see where my life force was going. I was like this, my life is draining calories and energy and time into, into like a black hole. And I think that I've been trying to pray less. Like I think we pray in unintentional ways because we think we're in a secular world. We don't acknowledge that we're praying, that attention is prayer. <laughs> and so we're praying into these into these weird vortexes that we don't totally understand. I love that. I was, I just wrote a piece about prayer um, from oh. a different context. Yeah. So it's, it's been close to my heart over this weekend. I, I had a lot of, a lot of views on, on Instagram because I put my TikTok videos onto Instagram. And so I had all this, um, you know, new audience. Right. And I had this, this, this comment that really stuck with me that really pissed me off but stuck with me where it was like it was like oh god all your like every video mentions your book like just like feels more like what is it it feels like like something something instead of entertainment and i was like the only i didn't write anything but i was like the only reason i'm doing these videos is because i love my book and i want people to read it <laughs> the only reason i find it like i find the idea of performance for the sake of performance without a connection to like the beautiful or the divine i find it really uh draining and very uncomfortable so for yeah. me i'm like i see my i see my book as um or any kind of creation but like definitely see my book as a kind of child in a way it's like i got that energy where i'm like okay you got to survive by yourself but i want to give you the best possible chances and i would do things for it that i probably you know i'd make cheesy tiktok videos for it and i wouldn't do that <laughs> otherwise but yeah, yeah. no yeah, and I, I think also about like there's also when I think about when we were talking about words with gold backing behind them and then words with like, like the money that we have now, like doesn't even exist. Yeah. I think about like when you're offering something that leads people to a book, which is the product of time and years. Yeah. And it's a, it's sometimes it's a physical object or it's the sound of your voice. You're bringing them back into the world. You're mm -hmm. hijacking the media, but you're planting them back in the world. And so I think that for me is always important is like, I'm giving something, but it's not to keep you here on a screen. It's to send yeah. you back into thinking and reading and digesting. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautifully said. Yeah. And I, I think that's the, um, yeah, in, in a way it's, it's like diving into a, into a crazy psychedelic shamanic realm. Actually, I think, I think it's a very shamanic realm. This is sort of like, yeah. you don't know who you can trust. There's allies and there's, there's uh, tricksters and there's, there's all yeah. sorts. And then, uh, yeah. And I'm curious, I'm curious where, um, where the internet will take us. So, so in our last, uh, 10 minutes or so, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a little bit more to zoom out a little bit and look at, just kind of get your thoughts on this this time of sort of upheaval and transition that we all live in right 
and and maybe the role because we started by talking about the role of myth in that so I, I, maybe we could start with just the role what is the role of the poet in in the times we live in well to make the revolution irresistible right isn't that the key <laughs> phrase um i think i think that's way too pat i'm really interested in how beauty drives evolution in ways that we don't totally understand we female birds preferentially pick birds who uh, male birds who have plumage and stripes and things in a way that's not necessarily good for them physically and then a, a whole new type of aesthetic experience emerges and if we and, and that the earth itself is a dynamic homeostasis uh, you know a, a moving changing assemblage of ecosystems and beings is also having an aesthetic experience <laughs> it's making choices that are about survival but also about beauty i think about beauty as being a way of compelling people to care to love to pay attention and i think poetry is a way of polishing life of making it beautiful making it strange there was a literary theorist called victor schlosky he wrote about the idea of defamiliarization. So people stop caring about things when they get too inured to them, too used to them. And, you know, I think about predictive processing, which is most of, we think about ourselves as perceiving inwards, but we're really perceiving outwards. We're projecting an idea of what reality is supposed to be like most of the time and occasionally allowing for interruptions and in that to shift our expectations. But it means that the world gets, our sensory gating shuts down. My psychedelics are great as they temporarily bust open those gates and help you see that the world is wilder, weirder, more animate than your sensory gating has allowed you to perceive. And so for me, Shlosky writes about how poetry and good art, good literature, shows you something you think you're familiar with, but from such a strange angle, from such a different perspective, that you see it. What you were talking about with that anim South American animism is you see the hidden presence suddenly. You suddenly see it naked. Poetry for me is, is has a kind of psychedelic effect when done well, which is it can shift you back into presentism, where you are suddenly forced to acknowledge the beauty, the strangeness of things that you've become used to. Um, and so good poetry wakes you back up. It can be it can be a shock to your system in the right way. Um, I, I mean, bad poetry won't do that. Bad liter literature won't. So you have to, you know, it, it and there's there's something in poetry called the turn of thought like when you when you change when you just shift something a little bit and you go oh like it's like a joint clicking back into place and i'm always interested in doing that rhetorically and you know it, poetry we have to remember was an oral tradition that the original stories were epic poems they were um and they were told by people called rhapsodes which and that word meant to stitch the songs together to go back to what we were talking about with music which is poetry music storytelling knowledge making history transmission all come from the same root system in songs and 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 singing and speaking and so i also sometimes think about you know how can we make ourselves more attractive to the world like what songs fit into the bio um sonic ecosystem we're in how can we learn how to make beautiful noises again not sense making to other humans but sense making to other birds i love that's that great. that's that's beautiful yeah you know there's a prophetic tradition of people uh hearing the birds and understanding the birds I mean, this is a very uh, uh, peter kingsley talks about this as a part yeah. of the prophetic tradition uh, yeah so that that just that just came to mind yeah there, there, I, I think something around something so powerful around 
beauty as something that can cut through chaos. You know, I've spent a lot of time on um, cultural sense making and the different practices, etc. They all tend to be quite embodied practices that actually take us through and beyond what whatever we're seeing, but also you know, what, what I notice, and that, that's, that's part of the reason that I'm moving my attention to practices that really are much more around implicit knowing is that that level of complexity has to be met through, through a kind of dance with the world rather than a mapping or a figuring out, because there's no figuring out. It's, you know, it's, uh, to, to, you know, I think to use some Nora Bateson's metaphor, you know, like, it's like drawing a map on sand that's shifting as you're trying to draw it. And it's just endlessly yeah. frustrating and, and, uh, and silly but i yeah i really love the the role of of beauty and i think beauty can kind of like stop your breath in your throat and interrupt cultural tensions and polarization more yeah. than any amount of dialoguing or mediation can can really do yeah, yeah. maybe the poet's job is to make beautiful those things that we do not think are beautiful that that we can you know i, I think a lot about microbes and fungi like i, I think I, I would love to polish those with my words and put them into song yeah i love that image and you'll be joining us in in the new year on on new ways of knowing and um so people can check that out in um in the in the notes of this um i'm really looking forward to to having your presence there and having the combination of of your insight with with all the other teachers i think it's going to be uh, quite special thanks for taking the time to do this well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun.